High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. This morning I've invited on a, a colleague, Ava Fechter, and he is a journalist and a columnist for The Daily Friend. And I was particularly intrigued by his article last Friday, um, Saturday, The Salesperson's Patter and the Prevarication of Sora Ramaphosa, which referenced his performance in the... At the Sona, and then he has written another article today in which he deals with the what appears to me to be Cyril's weekly letter from the president's desk, in which he kind of backtracks and explains himself. Ivo, welcome. Good morning, Sarah. Nice to be on the show again with you. Thank you. Um, can I just point a little, uh, uh, sort of describe a little scenario that sort of encapsulates my feelings on Sona and. Um, I don't know, you may or may not agree, I may be being too flippant about it. But you see a Sona, there's a red carpet at the magnificent city, laid out at the magnificent city hall, which has all six sort of historical significance, because Nelson Mandela gave his first speech on release from the city hall. They're in the city hall because effectively they've burnt down Parliament, blue light brigades drive up big, very expensive cars. Uh, people in, particularly women in outfits that I think would be described as moving from the sublime to the core blimey, and for all of which cost four million rand to to organise. And all I could think was this was really in bad taste. In the in the situation the country finds itself, an address from his office in the union buildings online would have been more appropriate. Am I being harsh? No, I don't think you are. I mean, you know, he's been doing that all through the coronavirus um, pandemic. He's been doing that every few weeks, every few months. He, he pops up on TV for a so-called family meeting, which is a horribly patriarchal way to view yes. <laughs> to view a democratic government. You know, but, you know, Daddy Ramaphosa is going to talk to his little children and tell, tell them they were naughty and tell them what to do. Um, and how he's going to punish them. So, so they know exactly how to do this, you know, and this gets broadcast on all free-to-air TV mm. channels and so on. So it's accessible to everyone. Mm. So, um, so, yeah, so it's essentially, but it's essentially, it's almost like, you know, the, the sort of high, the celebrity party that the rest of us has not been invited to. Yeah. Look, there is, a, there is a legal issue here that, you know, this is the opening of Parliament and he is supposed to be addressing the, the, the joint sitting of Parliament. Um, you know, Parliament and the the, the, the yeah. National Assembly and the National Council of Provinces. Right. So there might be a technical issue with the legality of how he addresses Parliament. Can he do that remotely? Mm. You know, I don't think that's an, that's an insurmountable obstacle. And yes. um, it's certainly it's certainly in the in, in the situation we find ourselves. I think it would have been far more appropriate. Now, you you, you essentially uh, talk about. Um, the president as, as practicing the art of saying what people want to hear, which can lead to inevitably it's got to be contradictions because you've got to please opposing interests. Yes, I mean, that's the thing. He speaks with a forked tongue. You know, he says he says something to please one constituency. He talks to the unions and workers, working class and so on and says, OK, I'm going to get you higher, higher wages and more jobs and, and, and we're going to implement some socialism and some 
uh, some welfare payments and so on. And then he talks to business and he says, well, you guys are the job creators. We're going to make it easier for you to create jobs by removing regulations. And basically, I love the free market, mm. which is which is totally contradictory. Uh, you know, in his in his um, his Monday newsletter, he makes that contradiction very clear where he mm-hmm. says we need both the developmental state and we need a dynamic free private sector. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the thing is, you fund the developmental state by capital that you tax away from the private sector. Yeah. So the stronger you make the developmental state, the weaker you make the private sector. Right? Mm-hmm. And the other way around, if you want to make the private sector stronger, then tax them less heavily for a start. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's, a, it's, it's a fundamental conflict. You can't mm-hmm. have both. And, and he says he wants both. You know, and, and that's just an ideological conundrum, a problem for him. Well, commentators seem to have been sort of very excited by his saying, <laughs> quote, we all know that government does not create jobs. Businesses, business creates jobs. And as you point out, literally one sentence earlier, he said, we have been taking extraordinary measures to enable businesses to grow and create jobs alongside expanded public employment and social protection. I, I mean, I'm not sure if it's a case of, you know, he may or may not understand the difference between the two, but he's almost... It, it, as you say, he 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 can't. He, he didn't sort of come out seeming to understand something we've long wanted him to understand, without assuring his base that he, they are going to keep on being fed from the public purse. Oh. No, that's the thing. I mean, later on in the speech, he uh, you know he explains that he's going to hire ten thousand people at Home Affairs to to digitise paper records. Mm. And like I'm thinking, well, uh, what they still have paper records mm. in 2022? Um, well, <laughs> but you know, that's 10,000 people. Then there's 50,000 work opportunities created through the Social Employment Fund and the Presidential Employment Stimulus, which supports what he says is 850,000 opportunities, mm. whatever that means. I know it doesn't mean jobs. Mm. Yeah, but mm. but he talks about hundreds of thousands of people employed by the public sector, and he's mm. very proud of that. Mm. So he contradicts himself completely when he says that government does not create jobs, business does. Mm. Can I, I mean, can I, you say, and I think this is correct, and I think it's not often enough stated, that Ramaphosa himself is an old school developmental state socialist. In other words, he is a socialist. He's, he's, yes. he's not the business the, the businessman free marketeer that he was touted to be for so long. And this is important in a in understanding Cyril and b in under be interesting your comment on this, the fact that you know the, very often the comment says he is constrained by his party from enacting changes, and I've always felt that he hasn't. He, there may be constraints from his party, but he isn't. He doesn't realise the need for genuine free market liberal con, uh, uh, um, reform. No, you know, I mean, he says in Sona, he says. Uh, fundamental reforms are needed to revive economic growth. Mm. Right? So I thought, okay, let's listen to what these fundamental reforms are going to be. Um, on Monday, he writes in his new le- newsletter that the idea of needing both a capable developmental state and a dynamic and agile private sector is not new. Indeed, it harks back to the policy guidelines expressed in the ready-to-govern paper adopted in 1992. Mm. So, which is it? Is he going to stick to a 30-year-old policy Right, in which the mm-hmm. developmental state has all this responsibility for coordinating, planning, and guiding the economy, or is he going to do fundamental reforms? He can't mm-hmm. have both, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And, and also, and it's, it's, it seems like complete backtracking. You know, mm-hmm. oh, we're going to we're going to actually implement this thirty-year-old policy. Well, we know where this thirty-year-old policy led us. Mm-hmm. You know, the highest unemployment in the world. Yeah. 
No, it, it led us to where um, sort of long-standing socialist policies have led socialist countries up to Absolutely. now. I mean, Ab no, no, no successes. The what I, the other thing that uh, uh, that really um, I think it's the phraseology. It's the sort of recognition of that and the sort of understanding of the following is the fact that you know he talks about a, a repeatedly about a capable state which capable state as you've just said is is one that's going to be ever expanded uh, whichever way the uh, the private sector goes surely we're looking at a, a state and I'm not referring to covid here of such disaster that the only way the ANC has any hope of being coming capable is is by shrinking as much as is humanly possible. Yeah, but he's doing the exact opposite, you see. Because all the SOEs are failing, he is proposing to appoint like a super SOE, like mm. a, hold, a holding company. So this is an additional layer, which will presumably consist of an entire board plus staff. So, I don't know, maybe 100 people or so, all on million plus salaries, between the Department of Public Enterprises or other, other ministries, and the SOEs that fall under them. Mm. So he's just adding a layer, and he's thinking that that makes things more efficient. Well, that strikes me as making things less efficient. Mm. Um, then he says um, uh, he wants to cut red tape, right? So mm. how's he going to do that? No, no, no. He's going to appoint uh, this this guy from the private sector. Um, what was his name? Nkosi, mm. uh, Sipo Nkosi, mm. mm -hmm. to, into the presidency. And he will presumably have a department of his own because he can't be doing it all himself. So mm -hmm. that'll be who knows how many people hosted in the presidency to cut red tape. Mm -hmm. But the job of cutting red tape is already already exists in the rest of the government. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. he's been speaking about it for years. Jacob Zuma's been speaking about it for years. Uh, Mbeki spoke about cutting red tape. You know, this is what government's been speaking about all along. Mm -hmm. And he does that with other things as well. He's got. Uh, and, and I'm quoting um, Kanita Hunter here, who wrote a great piece in the in News 24 on the bloated presidency, mm. which is almost like a parallel state. Yeah, I was going to ask. He, he, he's adding functions to the presidency that are not happening in um, in, in the dysfunctional government that, that mm. you know the, the official government. Mm. So he's got uh, Dr. Jose Ramakopa as head of investments and infrastructure in the presidency. Mm. There are government departments that are supposed to be doing that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you raise a crucial point here because I was—I can't make up my mind whether whether this is a, a power play to embolden the presidency and, and put as much power in the hands of the presidency, or whether it's a, a show of, of dissatisfaction about his own cabinet. In that, all the, as you say, all the departments have been theoretically are supposed to be cut, finding where red, red tape can be cut, and have been doing so for years, and. And these appointments have been made because they aren't doing it. I'm not sure which yeah. it is, or both. Or... Yeah, I'm not sure either. And I'm not convinced at all that these new departments inside the presidency are going to make all that much difference. Mm. You know, um, I mean, <laughs> they're going to meet with massive resistance, of course, from uh, from the government departments that they mm. are now going to be interfering with. Exactly, so, yeah. You know, it just doesn't strike me as an efficient way of doing things at all. Yeah, um, but yeah, he's 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 he, he tries to please everyone. You know, he tries to. His main mission is to retain power within mm -hmm. the ANC. You know, he's up for he's up for re-election later on this year. 
and it's to uh, keep the ANC keep ANC unity together. Mm. You know, that's that's the thing. He is the old school NDR socialist. You yeah. know, that 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 is. I wrote that when he first uh, took the office of president. So don't get your hopes up. This guy is not a new dawn guy. This guy is an old school socialist. Mm. He's mm. very charismatic. He's very charismatic. Mm. You know. Which leads people like Max Dupree to say that the Sona was a tour de force. Mm. You know, it sounds very nice. Well, it sounds very nice because he tells everybody what they want to hear. Mm. Mm. You know, one no, after the other, and, and and people don't even pick up the contradictions. Yeah. Now I think it's that uh, Zuma had it in a in a different way, but it's that uh, that ability to charm. And I think in the case of Ramaphosa, it's that sort of sense of the, as you say, almost daddy-like, the, the calm you know, every, persona. Everyone who makes it to that position right, has this charm skill. Mm. You know, if it was D and D, they would have an eighteen for, for on their charm score. Mm. Um, I, you know, I haven't I haven't met a lot of presidents, but I've met Thabo Mbeki, right? And the guy is, you know, I disagree with Thabo Mbeki on quite a few things. You know, mm. I mean, he's also he's also frankly a socialist. He was a slightly smarter socialist than, than the ones we've had since. Mm, yeah. but, you know, but but whoa, the guy. One on one, personally, the guy is so charming, mm. so convincing. Mm. You know, he would wrap you around his little pinky in no time. It's it's astonishing how smooth and 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 charismatic mm. uh, people at people at that level are, and and we shouldn't be fooled by that. You know, this is this is a skill. This is they're just good salespeople. Mm. You know, that doesn't mm. mean that they're telling the truth. Yeah. Now, the, the, it may, now that you mention it, it, it sort of raises the question when big business first met the ANC in the 80s and 90s, that they what, that all these sort of hard-bitten, experienced negotiators, uh, these ca these uh, masters of, of, of big business, weren't in fact over, sort of overcome by the charm of the people they met. And so they... they they didn't read the message. They didn't hear the message. They just saw the uh, the very reasonable, understanding um, freedom fighter who, the, for, for decades, you know, they'd theoretically been at odds with. Yeah. No, I think so. I think a lot of it has to do with that. Um, Ramaphosa, of course, was the chief negotiator during the Codesa years. You know, so he's he's highly skilled mm. in 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 doing exactly what 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 I just said, telling people what they want to hear. I think I think there's a bit more to it, though. You know, business was probably they were probably very afraid of a revolution, of having mm. it all just expropriated. Mm. You know, which was a very real possibility. You know, sure. I think I think there were times in in the early '90s that we were not very far away from civil war, and and business obviously didn't want that. That would have mm. been that would have been terrible for them. So mm. they they were they were keen to make concessions mm. in order to keep a sort of peaceful understanding. Uh, between between them and the government, uh, or the new government. Can I change tack slightly? And that and this is what I sort of would call the the embarrassing side of uh, of uh, the sona, where Ramaphosa speaks in homilies and he refers to examples of people who've somehow made their miserable little three hundred and fifty rand social grant. It could be saved and it could be turned into a business that can employ people and. It's. I mean, as you point out, the, 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 where he gets this from, one doesn't know because there is. Looking at the figures, if you go through the, the examples, um, there is no way that these uh, that these 
This, no, this could have happened on this sort of amount of money. And he also talks about how, you know, our ports need to be efficient. No kidding. You know, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, it's that, it's that. It's, I was it's, watching it's it. Something. Yeah. I was watching it with my 12-year-old and, uh, you know, I asked him, do you know that you can't keep fresh fruit and vegetables in a, in a, in a, in a warehouse for too long because then, you know. He said, yeah, no, we, we were taught that in, in grade four already. Well, why is the president explaining this to us and to members of parliament? You know, mm. but ports need to be efficient because we export fresh, uh, fresh produce and, and we can't store that forever. Well, no, no, of course not. This is basic elementary mm. stuff. Mm. And he doesn't take responsibility for the state of the ports. He just said, oh, they've deteriorated over the last few years. Well, Mr. President, these were the last few years that you were in office. Why mm. have they deteriorated? Mm. Who caused them to deteriorate? Now you're going to say, oh, we've got to fix it. Well, you know, mm. it's, it's like stating the obvious. And yeah, I don't believe the stories of the 350 rand people uh, saving that money. Mm. Well, firstly, if they save that money, that suggests that they shouldn't have re received the, the grant in the first place. First place, yeah. It's supposed to be relief of distress. You know, and secondly, they, they, you know, the one, the one saved up two, two thousand four hundred and fifty rand, and the other one saved up three thousand one hundred and fifty rand, and the one with, that saved up less started a business with employing four people. Well, I'm sorry, but you cannot employ four people <laughs> on two thousand four hundred and fifty rand. You know, well, you can, but it's illegal. So, it's, it's. I don't believe these stories at all. I think you just made those up. Right. But there's other things where he does the same sort of thing. He says, uh, oh, we've, um, we're investigating a couple of hundred people uh, over corruption, you know, the, uh, government employees. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> this is in a civil service that is about three million people strong. So we're talking one in 10,000. You know, I, I think that probably the rate of corruption in the civil service is much closer to 1% or even more. So the two orders of magnitude higher. Um, and what I didn't see there was any any senior people being, being investigated or being handed over to the APA. The guy should have locked the city hall doors and started addressing <laughs> his, the buddy, his, his own buddies in the audience. Those are the corrupt guys. Those are the guys that deal with billions, you know. Yeah. Going after the small fry, well, that's just scapegoating and suggesting that he's doing something when really he isn't. Absolutely. And uh, there's one issue I'll come back to after the break, which I'd like to raise about uh, his, uh, the government's hypocrisy. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Um, I know you, talk, you talked about and this is the, the, probably the last issue I want to canvas with you, that the uh, government has excluded itself from having to comply with the national minimum wage legislation. Now, this is, I, I mean, as, as, a, as a private person living in the private sector, this is absolutely outrageous, given the pressures put on us by uh, an obligatory minimum wage and, and adding insult to injury. The minimum wage has just been increased but they were either too lazy or thought they could get through the fact that there was no, as in previous years, there's been no distinction and uh, sort of uh, provision for farm workers and domestics recognizing that they are in industries that cannot necessarily meet the minimum wage. So for farm workers and domestics, suddenly that minimum wage went up dramatically. 
Yeah, you know, and they they keep saying that it doesn't affect employment, but that's absolute rubbish. If you're in a, if you're the kind of family, you know, I mean, look where I live, people pay twice the minimum wage anyway to their mm. to their domestics. Um, this is you know, this is sort of an upper, upper middle class suburb. But if you live in the work in the lower middle class and and you employ a domestic, uh, and you're paying the minimum wage, now suddenly the minimum wage goes up. Well, everyone's just had COVID. Everyone's just uh, dealt with with businesses going under and so on, having to take salary cuts. Um, they literally cannot afford this kind of increase. Right? Mm. So it's very simple. Those people are going to be out on the street. Mm. Well, look, out on the street, what they can get is they can get a, um, a government job mm. in the expanded public to works program, where instead of uh, earning 23 rand 19 per hour, they will get paid only 12 rand 75 an hour. Right? This is this is just over half mm. the national minimum wage. Right? So, I mean, how how I mean how I, I don't know how they can do this because um, I mean there, there cannot be any justification that applies to. I mean, it throws out, it throws out the first it throws out the first argument for a minimum wage is that people ought to be paid a decent living wage. Yeah. Well, if that's true, then how can the government pay them half of a decent living mm. wage? You know, that's just not, uh, it, it just throws out that argument completely. Mm. Um, of course, what does happen is, is people will take jobs at any sort of pay, and, and they might not be the only contributors to the household expenses, but they contribute mm. a little. Right? So it's not that they have to live and pay rent and everything on that salary, mm. but two or three of those pay, so salaries together mm. yeah, could, could pay for household expenses. You know, so, so yeah, government, government considers it perfectly ethical to do what it considers unethical in the private sector. It's it's absurd. It's very hypo- hypocritical. Um, perhaps uh, uh, maybe they only understand it for the for the government sector, not the private. And that is the fact that if the government sector, for some reason, can't afford it, um, can't afford the, the minimum wage, um, the chances are the private sector can't afford the minimum wage either. Um, no, that's exactly it. The, the the public sector, you know, expanded public works program is, is meant to be labour intense. It's meant to employ mm. as many people as possible, right? And it, it employs, I think, about half a million people. No, but, but that exact same argument goes for the private sector. Mm. If you want the mm. private sector to employ lots of people, then you need to allow them to pay less for unskilled jobs. You know, that way you get more people employed. Uh, I find it absurd that you can that you can prohibit someone from taking a job at a at a, at a wage that they are willing to receive, um, and tell them that no, uh, instead of earning a thousand rand a month, um, it, it is better if you earn nothing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, talk talk about paternalistic and ignorant. Yes, no, it's it's absolutely absurd, uh, and and hypocritical, as I said. Well, I think what we've established is that the contradictions continue to abound. And as long as you have huge amounts of contradictions, not much is likely to get done properly. But Ava, thank you very much for coming on once again to Daily Friend. That's, sorry, Daily Friend. <laughs> uh, okay, you wrote for Daily Friend. To coming on to the IR podcast show. And uh, we'll get you back in the future to, to have uh, a discussion about another controversial issue. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, yeah, no, we could t- we could talk about the sona and, and the contradictions for hours. But you're but you're but you're right. It, it, but you're right. It it does suggest that it is it's just like the previous ones. It's promises, promises, promises. Nothing's going to happen. Happen. 
right so we shouldn't get uh, we shouldn't get too 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 misled by the language absolutely not no thanks Ivan. all right